and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Bennett, better known as Paul Quentin. And welcome to our 51st episode of Nauticast entitled Princess in the Tower, an analysis of the Game of Thrones Sansa 4 in which Sansa Stark is locked up at the very top of Maegor's Holdfast with Jane Poole before being manipulated once more by Cersei, who really, man, she's just the fucking worst in this chapter, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Almost as bad as Littlefinger, and I don't say that lightly. Oh, man, my blood is already boiling. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, and Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about potentially all the published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. We want to start by announcing what our next Patreon-only episode is going to be about. We're going to be releasing it on the last day of the month, February 28th, and the title is going to be... Drum roll, please. The Shadow of a Crown, Jon Snow and Young Griff, with our special guest Grant, a.k.a. Heathen King on Twitter. Yeah, it's going to be awesome to get Grant on here. We've uh, really enjoyed some of the stuff he's been writing specifically about Jon Snow, so we couldn't imagine a person better suited to come on for this episode than the man who might love Jon Snow more than anyone else in the world. Might, but I don't know, the competition is a little bit fierce on that count. His love for Jon Snow honestly reminds me of our love for Stannis, and it's only the, the <laughs> highest of compliments. It's the exact same tone and fevered pitch. So he's he's a good comrade in that regard, yes. And he specifically has talked well about this topic, which is near and dear to my heart, the ways in which <clears throat> young Griff acts as this kind of distorted, inverted mirror of Jon Snow and how they have a lot of tropes and a lot of character archetypes in common, but flipped in these really interesting ways. And this, I think, is one of Younger's primary reasons for being in the series, is to expand on this archetype and show how things could have gone differently with Jon Snow and show how the author feels about these archetypes. One of the things that's going to be great about the episode is that we get to talk about two characters that probably won't ever meet in the narrative, right? You can't, I don't foresee Jon Snow and Young Griff meeting up in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring or anything like that. But they do have a lot of commonality and shared narrative purpose in it. So I'm very, very excited to do that episode with Grant. So if you guys are not already following him on Twitter, he's at heathen underscore king on Twitter. And we also wanted to do a very, very quick reminder that our most recent Patreon episode is out now. That is our Q&A episode, our Stump the Chumps episode about Fire and Blood Volume 1. It is out now for all of our $5 and above patrons. So if you're one of our patrons, go ahead and check us out. And if you are not one of our patrons yet and you're interested in learning more about it, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-F to find out more. Let's get special episodes, early release, show notes, Q&A, all sorts of goodies. So check us out if you're interested. Our question, which came to us about a month ago, comes from one of our aforementioned council members, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Jancy O, who asks, Happy New Year, gentlemen. Hope you are both well and have enjoyed some winter celebrations. So Sansa, I must confess that she has never been one of my favorite characters. (laughs) Hey. 
Thank you for your encouragement to rethink her art. <laughs> you inspired me to re-listen to the Saints episode on Radio Westeros. Excellent choice. And yes. to begin listening to the Girls Gone Canon character episodes too. Even better choice. <laughs> My question. Do you think George is commenting on or referencing any real-world stories, hmm. films, fairy tales, tropes, etc. with Sansa? Sometimes elements of her story spark images of Disney princesses and chiclet for me, but I can't quite pin down my thought process. And you seem to have a way of drawing up parallels that I've yet to achieve. Thanks for all the great listening over the holidays. Well, thank you so much for the question, JNCO, and uh, for your kind words and the support. And what do you think, Jeff, as noted Sansa Stark fan? <laughs> well, first what, of all... What other fictional characters and tropes do you think are at play in her character? Yeah. So first of all, I wanted to say thank you, JNCO, for validating my opinion about Sansa Stark not being one of my favorite characters. It's it's so nice to get that because that is a, an opinion you that is shared poor, by no one. poor thing. <laughs> No, but actually, Go on, self pity aside, Sansa is growing on me, Emmett. I just want to point that out there that Sansa is growing on me, especially in this chapter, as we're going to be finding growing on you like a like a delightful mold. I know, like a mold or like like the chicken pox. Um, so, <laughs> so interesting question about tropes and what things that George might be referencing about Sansa Stark. One of the things I wanted to point out first and foremost is that George R. R. Martin. Back in the 1980s, so a few years before he even imagined A Song of Ice and Fire, before it was a twinkle in his eyes, so to speak, he was a the, the head writer of a TV show called Beauty and the Beast, which reimagined the Beauty and the Beast story to be set in modern day or 1980s version of New York City with beasts living in the sewer system of New York and all these kind of interesting things. I actually have only seen a few YouTube clips of it. I haven't seen a full episode of the show yet. But I do think this is an interesting parallel because I think what George is identifying here is he's reimagining a fairy, a, a major fairy tale that's had a lot of influence, especially on Americana and American culture uh, these past, you know, ever since the Disney uh, movie came out back in the 1940s, I want to say, 50s. Was that Beauty and the Beast? No, Beauty and the Beast was in the 90s, right? Yeah, the animated one that, yeah, that did come out in the 90s. And Whoops. I, I think you definitely see... <laughs> Definitely see that strong influence on Sansa's character, especially in terms of her relationship with Sandor. Yeah. And yeah, the 80s Beauty and the Beast show, it, it's kind of trashy. It's fun. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not exactly, you know, the, the, the purest, grandest George R. R. Martin work out there, but it is definitely uh, an important puzzle piece in his work in terms of how that trope comes out, not just with Sansa and Sandor, but also gender flipped with Jamie and Brienne, as many people have pointed out. True that. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things, too, I mean, if you're interested, it's got a young Ron Perlman as the Beast and it's got Linda Hamilton as the uh, as as the uh, as beauty, so to speak. And I do think that George has based at least some of his relationship between Sansa and Sandor potentially on the beauty and the Beast archetype, uh, especially and this kind of gets away from Sansa a little bit. But one of the things about the Beast in that version is that he's like kind of. Uh, he's half kind of he's like half human, half kind of his face is like just kind of beast like, which is very much a kind of Sandor Clegane parallel, as as our friend Chloe pointed out in our our Sansa episode back a, f a few months ago. So I think that's one of the major influences on the creation of Sansa in that archetype, uh, her being the beauty side. I mean, she's consistently referred to as exceptionally uh, pretty and beautiful for her age. I mean, again, she's only eleven years old, she's, so she is not fully flowered into full womanhood. Um, well, she has in, in some respects, but not in others. But I think that's one of the ways that I think that George has played with an archetype here. What about you, Emmett? What do you think about what Sansa might be based on in terms of uh, archetypes, in terms of myth, in terms of legend? Well, speaking of Disney, I think there's certainly elements of Disney princesses from the classical movies of the 40s and the 50s, his interpretations of Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and so on. 
I think have obviously had a huge influence on fantasy writing and princess archetypes in general. So I think if, as seems the case, Martin was trying to comment on some of those archetypes as they played out, then Disney princesses are an easy vessel for that, which is why Sansa loses a slipper Cinderella style when Lysa's trying to throw her out the moon door. <laughs> I think you can see that as Martin being like, you know, this is it's Cinderella, but with the, the, the threat and the fear and the tension turned up to 11. Yep. So I think you can see that kind of impulse throughout Sansa's story. In terms of legends and, and myths, I think there's a clear influence of the Hades and Persephone story when, again, Sansa gets to the Veil and Storm of Swords. I'm far f- from the first point of this out, but Littlefinger offers a pomegranate uh, that Sansa refuses, and like that's significant because that's you know that's the fruit of the underworld that Persephone eats, and therefore is trapped there for for six months out of every year in in the Greek legends. So I think you can see Martin kind of mixing and matching like he likes to do between older legends and kind of more recent pop culture riffs on those same legends. So yeah, I, I think there's elements of Sansa Stark that are also just like you know the pretty girl in high sure. school tv shows and there's like there's elements especially in this first book we've seen sansa chapters of sansa being you know the the popular girl and Arya being the loner tomboy at the <laughs> lunch table there is that element to it as well i think that in tr- sp- just in terms of like dialogue and like when sansa and Arya were fighting at the tower of the hand and sansa said you know you'll have to call me your grace and Arya throws the orange <laughs> like that's very uh, uh a lunchroom fight scene oh yeah it is anything connected to uh princess stories or older legends so i think there's a there's a lot of different things thrown in the pot there for sure yeah i absolutely agree with that and we we have another question which we will save for another episode from lady b word which asks us about uh putting the different characters from the song of ice and fire into a high school setting so we will answer that someday down the road perfect uh, so I'm, I'm very interested now because you definitely have piqued my curiosity interest about that so stannis baratheon president of the av club yep <laughs> pretty much yeah Pretty much. So thank you, Lady Commander Jancy O, for the question. We appreciate it. And thank you so much for your very kind patronage over these past few months. But now we get on to our synopsis for this chapter. And so here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Cersei 1. Jeff, do we have to do this every single time? Okay, fine. We, we don't have to. So the title of this episode is The Prince of the Tower. So I assume we're reviewing Arianne's final Feast for Crows chapter, right? That's her final episode. Jeff, chapter you didn't realize... You do realize Sansa has more chapters in the next book, right? This is not going away. It's not going to get any easier. Oh, no. Into the breach once more, my friend. Oh, man. But I'm, I just have to say, I will never go off shtick. I will never stop. I know. I, I know. It's I'm, what we love about you. Well, or hate. One of the two. Both at the same time. Same thing. Same As Mira Reed says, they're the same thing. Pretty much. If love and hate can exist, so can fire and ice. <clears throat> but alas, Sorry. it's neither a Cersei chapter nor an Ariane chapter. It's a Sansa one. And here is its synopsis. It's been three days since shit went real bad for Team Stark and King's Landing. But Sansa is alive. Good. But now they're coming for her. Bit of an ominous start. It's really not going to get any better for poor Sansa going forward. Sansa gets into stark colors by donning a gray wool dress fringe with embroidery around the collar and sleeves. All the same, she's really not feeling quite herself. She's clumsy putting her clothes on without servants. And yeah, sure, Jane Poole was there assisting her, but she was essentially useless and was just sobbing about her father because, well, she has no idea why Jane Poole will be sobbing about her father. But her father is probably well, right? She tells Sansa, she tells Jane. But Jane hadn't responded the way that Sansa wanted. She began crying harder, like a child in Sansa's mind. Damn, Sansa, read some goddamn subtext here. 
<sighs> sure, Sansa had cried too when everything went bad on that first day. She was inside Maker's Holdfast, and she heard all the sounds of battle and killing in the castle yard below, and she'd realized that, yeah, she had grown up around the sound of fighting all her life, but this was real, and that scared her. And why, oh why, were all the soldiers and knights screaming and begging for mercy? It, it wasn't like the songs one bit. She'd spent the day crying and pleading for information through the locked door in the castle. She'd asked for Ned, Septa Bourdain, for even frickin' Robert, but especially for Joffrey. But no one answered her. In fact, the only time the door opened was when Jane had been tossed into her room. They're killing everyone, Jane had shrieked. And then we get the full report from Jane. Sandra Clegane had taken out the door to the Tower of the Hand with a warhammer. There were bodies up and down the stairs to the Tower of the Hand, and there was blood everywhere. Sansa had attempted to comfort a friend, and they had even slept in the same bed, cradling each other like sisters. But would day two be any better? No. Fuck no. Worse still. Sure, the fighting was done, but now the Lannisters were prowling about like the traitor assholes that they were, and it was quiet. Too, too quiet. The quiet of the grave. The only sound was Jane's sobbing. But the second day, they did get to eat some bread, cheese, and milk for breakfast, then some chicken and greens for lunch, and then a dinner of beer and barley stew. But much as Ariane Martel will find out when we get to her Princess in the Tower chapter in like four or five years, the servants who had brought them food refused to speak with her. And she was still trapped in her room, unable to leave. And then the bell had rang, its tone deep and long, and the ringing never seemed to stop. Other bells joined from the great Sept of Baelor and other places in King's Landing. And Sansa knows what it means. King Robert is dead. Weirdly, though, she can't say why she knows this, but she knows it in her heart. But how did Robert die? Did some enemy storm the Red Keep and murder him? Was that what all the fighting was about? Well, Sansa, you're not quite right, but you're not exactly wrong either. Sansa gets into bed thinking that if Robert is dead, then Joffrey was the king. She hopes the quote-unquote enemies hadn't killed Joffrey too. She hopes that Ned isn't dead either. Asleep now, Sansa dreams of being the queen with Joffrey as the king next to her. She had a crown on in her dream, and everyone said their courtesies, and, well, Sansa, your dream may not be exactly right, but it may not be exactly wrong either, as we'll find out in The Winds of Winter next week, A Dream of Spring the week after that, and Game of Thrones Season 8 in April. Anyways, mm -hmm. back to the start of the chapter. Sir Boros Blunt, an ugly-ass motherfucker who deserves to be banished to Cleveland, Ohio, is the King's Guard Knight who has come for Sansa. Sansa Stark lies to Boros about how handsome he is, and Boros says, yeah, you look pretty fetching, too. Oh, and by the way, you're going to Cersei. Have fun. Outside of a room at long last, Sansa sees Lannister Redcloaks guarding the door. She smiles at them and tries to say good morning to them, which, you know, as much as every red cloak in King's Landing during Ned's coup attempt deserves the business end of Stannis' justice, they probably found that awfully disconcerting. Yeah, true. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a little backstory note that Sansa had been escorted to Mager's Holdfast by Sir Aerys Oakheart at the behest of Cersei, who wanted to keep her safe. Curious mm. that. Keep that in mind. Anyhow... Sansa thinks they're going to traipse on down to the royal apartments in Mager's Holdfast to visit with Cersei, but no. They're leaving that part of the castle. Outside, Sansa watches as a man is lowered down to the depths of the dry moat. She also sees another man impaled on the large spikes at the bottom of the moat. Lovely imagery, but she averts her eyes, not wanting to know if this was someone that she knew. Finally, they come into the small council chambers to find Cersei, Lord Creepyfinger, Pycelle, and Varys. Hmm, I don't know about this. Not really getting a great vibe about what's about to go down. You too, Emmett? Not especially. 
<sighs> Regardless, Cersei is looking fetching as always with a black silk gown and a hundred red rubies sewn into her bodice cut in the shape of teardrops, most likely tears of joy because it's Cersei. Cersei smiles a sad, sweet smile at Sansa. Sansa, my sweet child, I know you've been asking for me. I'm sorry that I could not send you for you sooner. Matters have been very unsettled and I have not had a moment. I trust my people have been taking good care of you. Sansa, not being one to forget her courtesies, lets Cersei know that she's been treated ever so gently and well. But no one will tell us what's going on. Us? Cersei asks. Ah, uh, yes. We put Ned Stark's steward's daughter in with Sansa. They didn't really know what to do with her, Boros reports to Cersei. Well, Cersei ain't happy about that. Why don't you ask me the next time, you big ugly idiot? Besides, Cersei doesn't want Jane spreading some awful tales about what's been happening about in the Red Keep. Yeah, about that, Sansa puts in. Jane's scared. Is it all right if she sees her dad? Pycelle, to his credit, very small credit, has the decency to look away, probably ashamed. Wait, is Vanpool okay? He's only a steward. The dude doesn't even carry a sword. Cersei looks around at the counselors and does her I won't have Sansa fretting needlessly bit. She asks what they should do with Jane. Lord Peter, the godless coward who will die like a chump, leans forward. I'll find a place for her. But not in the city, of course. That would be too obvious or something. Cersei orders Boros Blunt to fetch the girl and bring her to Littlefinger's apartments to take her to see her father. And man, my my, my blood is already boiling. Press, buddy. You got this. I, I appreciate that. Boros slithers away like a grease slug about to be a monster, and Sansa is confused about what's happening and what's become of Jane's father. Sure, she'd promised herself she'd be ladylike like Cersei and strong as Catelyn, but she was scared now and on the verge of tears again. She stands up for Jane one last time, asking where they're sending her and telling everyone that Jane has done nothing wrong. But Cersei's all like, oh, Jane is upsetting you, Sansa, and Littlefinger will take good care of her, and I just want to roundhouse kick the entire small council, but especially that goddamn creepy finger. You can probably already tell that what we're going to be talking about at the end of this podcast, for sure, towards the end of it. Anyways, Cersei wants to talk with Sansa, so Sansa grabs a seat and observes everyone. Varys is there, wringing his hands. Pycelle still refuses to make eye contact with Sansa, but Creepyfinger, that motherfucker who should be set adrift on a leaky boat bound for the shores of Delaware, stares at Sansa, and Sansa thinks that the way he's leering at her makes her feel like she's not wearing any clothes. <sighs> Sansa... I can hear Chloe's voice, but I'm going to say it here. She's 11, dude. Damn, Littlefinger. Fuck you. Die. I'm sorry. Littlefinger's just getting under my skin again, Emmett. How does this always happen that this one dude can get so under my skin so easily? It's all that red meat and freedom and whatnot, Jeff. It angers up the blood. Oh, my gosh. I just want to... Deep breaths. Anyways, Cersei lies about how she and Joffrey love her, and Sansa is, is all in a daze. She forgets Littlefinger because nothing else matters. Cersei lies again, talking about how she thinks of Sansa as her own daughter, and yada yada lies, and oh, sorry, bad news, but your dad, he's a fucking traitor. Pycelle finally makes eye contact and does his Lancer Tody song and dance routine about how Ned swore to protect Joffrey and Tommen, but then he tried to steal Joffrey's throne. No, Sansa blurts, he, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. Cersei grabs a letter spotted with dry blood, because of course it is, and hands it to Sansa. It's the letter that Ned planned to send to Stannis. You remember the one about how Stannis is the one true king of Westeros? Hell yeah. We remember that. Sansa gets panicked and starts talking about how all this is a mistake and that her father would never do that. Robert was his friend. Oh, it would have broken Robert's heart to know that Ned had written such a terrible, terrible letter, Cersei says. But it's 
also even more awful because it puts the Lannisters in a terrible position. Sure, Sansa is innocent of everything, but she was the daughter of a traitor now. And how could Cersei marry her beautiful Joffrey to a traitor's daughter? And now my blood is up again, and I'm just going to have to just just keep pushing Adults through. are the worst. They are the worst, man. <sighs> but Sansa loves Joffrey. It's unfair what's happening. And what the hell happened to Ned, Cersei? It wasn't supposed to be like this. They were taking everything from her. Oh, but Cersei knows that Sansa loves Joffrey. Why else would she have come and told Cersei of Ned's plans to send Arya and Sansa back to Winterfell aboard that ship? Oh, boy. Go ahead. I know you guys... I know you guys are probably already being like, oh my gosh, this is a major reveal. If you didn't already know that, which you should have, because this is a reread podcast. But go ahead and re-listen to our analysis of Sansa 3, because we ain't relitigating that matter this much here. Not, not, not too yes, much. Indeed. Well, yeah, Sansa did do that because of her love for Joffrey. Usually she was a good girl, but she felt like Arya, all wicked and shit, when she slipped away to tell Cersei of her father's plans. Sansa did not want to go back to Winterfell to marry some hedge knight, and she tells the council as much. Interestingly, though, Sansa had first thought to go to Robert, but she'd reconsidered after thinking about how much Robert frightened her. That's an interesting AU, if you you can imagine that. So she went to Cersei instead, and Cersei had listened and thanked her, and then ordered Sir Aerys Oakheart to escort her to that tower chamber high atop Mager's Holdfast. A few hours later, the slaughter had begun. Please, Sansa says, you have to let me marry Joffrey. I'll be ever so good a wife to him. You'll see, I'll be a queen just like you. I promise. Jesus, I fucking hope that that Sansa never becomes a queen like Cersei. Regardless, Cersei turns to the small council to get their opinions of the matter. Varys does his song and dance about the true love and innocence and some such. Pycelle talks about a child being bored of traitor seed will naturally betray everyone. Sure, she's nice now, but in ten years she could be leading treasons against Joffrey. What? No. Sansa wouldn't betray Joffrey. Oh, but you might, Varys says. Blood runs truer than O's. Hmm, Varys, you do say that. Interesting. Care to say more? No? Of fucking course not. Oh, but Littlefinger has things to say. Sansa so reminds him of Catelyn. Because Littlefinger is totally not a brooding 30-something acting like a fucking teen going on and on about his lost love for Catelyn, right? Right? Yeah, right. It's the hair, the eyes for Littlefinger. She looks just like Catelyn did that age. Cersei pretends to be troubled and does a bit about how she wishes that Sansa was not like Ned, and Joffrey loves her so, so much. But the blood will always run true, and Sansa will probably betray Joffrey, just like Arya setting Nymeria on Joffrey back in the day. You know, I, I just want to stop for a moment and just get angry about how much everyone is lying to Sansa and manipulating her. It's it's fucking evil, man. There's no ifs or buts about it. Damn straight. But I really should stop digre- digressing and finishing out this chapter summary. <clears throat> Again, Sansa tries her best. I'm not like Arya. I'm good. She tells them to ask September Date if they don't believe her and gut punch because September Date is probably dead at this point. Cersei studies Sansa and pretends to be convinced by Sansa. My lords, it seems to me that if the rest of her kin were to remain loyal in this terrible time, that would go a long way towards laying our fears to rest. Precisely, Pycelle puts in. Ned has three sons. Mere boys, Littlefinger says. They should be more scared of Catelyn and the Tullys. <laughs> yeah, y'all are going to choke on those words come the end of this book. Cersei asks if Sansa's literate. She is. Well, then you should write to Catelyn and Rob. Let them know that Ned is a dirty, dirty traitor. Sansa is confused, rightfully so, not really knowing what she might say. 
Oh, don't worry about that, Sansa, Cersei says. They'll tell her what to say. All everyone has to do is just, you know, keep the king's peace and it'll all go fine. But it will go hard for them if they don't, Grandmaster Pycelle says, like the coward who Vars' little birds will murder the shit out of in A Dance of Dragons. Cersei adds that Catelyn will probably fear for Sansa, but you should allay her fears. Let her know that you're being treated ever so well. And everyone should just come to King's Landing for a little party to swear a fealty to Joffrey when he takes the throne. <laughs> and then you'll get to wet Joffrey. Best day ever. Oh, wow. What a deal, Sansa thinks. Her head is swimming. She might be down for that, but could maybe she see her dad first? <laughs> no. Cersei is disappointed. Ned's a traitor. They told her that how many times now? You don't want to see him. Sansa's eyes begin to water and she starts sputtering about the well-being of her father. Is he alive? Has he been hurt? Oh, not to worry, Sansa. Eddard has not been harmed. His fate, though, is in the hands of the king. Oh, wow. Sansa hadn't even thought of that. Joffrey is the king now? If he loved her, he wouldn't harm Ned. Perhaps he might exile him to the Free Cities because he has to punish her, punish him for treason. But then Sansa would still be married to Joffrey, and she could get him back and get him the pardon that he deserves. But what if Rob or Catelyn called the banners, or refused to pledge fealty to Joffrey? What if they became traitors too? I'll, I'll write the letters, Sansa tells the council. Sansa ends up writing four letters to Catelyn, to Rob, Bran and Rickon and Winterfell, to Lysa Aaron and to Hoster Tully. She signs each of them and seals them with her father's direwolf stamp. Sansa's returned to her apartments later that night, and Jane is gone. At first, she's kind of relieved, if she's being honest, but it's much colder without Jane there, even after she lights a fire in the hearth. She pulls a book of Jonquil and Florian the Fool and another book of Lady Shella and the Rainbow Knight of Aemon and his doomed love for Nerys. It was only later as she was falling asleep that she realized that she forgot to ask about Arya. And that is a Game of Thrones Sansa 4, a chapter designed to make me feel very, very mad online. And it's on behalf of Sansa. Sansa, come on, come on, George. You can't make me feel those kinds of emotions for Sansa of all people, can you? Yeah, I think you can. What'd you think of it? So if Eddard 14 and Arya 4 taken together represented the most explosive challenge yet to the songs and stories worldview, whose fall from grace is the primary subject of this first book, then Sansa 4 is a desperate case for the defense. <laughs> In the face of terror and chaos, Sansa tries so hard to hold on to the remaining fragments of her world, and this interplay of imprisonment and struggle for control will define her story for the next several books. In the process, she's wrong about a lot of things, mm -hmm. as we see in your summary, and she has some real obvious levers for Cersei to press on. But as we said about Sansa 3, every beat fits the arc. Yeah. Sansa 3 was the liminal in-between state, and now the walls are starting to close in. In Sansa 5, she'll try to save her father from that trap's jaws, and in Sansa 6, she'll reckon with her failure as the book-long project of deconstruction is complete. So this is just another little link in that chain. It really is. I mean... When we talked about Eddard and Arya's chapters in the past two weeks, I think one of the things I talked about is that the those chapters very much felt like the climaxes of their arcs and their final chapters, Arya 5 and Eddard 15, felt like essentially the epilogues. But this doesn't feel like the climax of Sansa's arc. This feels like the tension is ratcheting ever upwards for her story because the next chapter, more than anything else, is still ratcheting the tension upwards where you have that tension between whether she can save her father's life 
and whether she can negotiate her way through some very dangerous and intricate politics in King's Landing. Really here, Climax almost feels like it comes in Arya's fifth chapter in A Game of Thrones, where Arya is witnessing Sansa's reactions to what she's seeing up there with Ned at Baylor's Sept. And Sansa Six really feels like the epilogue to Sansa's story, where she realizes that all of the stories that she grew up listening to, all of the things that she loves and all of the, the courtesies that she's fallen in love with and that she utilizes here, they're all not meaningless, but they're all empty, especially in a place like King's Landing when you have people like Joffrey and Cersei and Littlefinger, Varys and Pycelle running the show. And it's sad. I mean, she's a, Sansa very much is in a powerless place in this chapter where she is at the whim and will of these people that are all around her. And she has no real allies. No one is looking out for her. Everyone is trying to use her. Everyone is trying to manipulate her to be the type of person who's able to ensure the Lannisters get away with this. And that's really shitty on everyone, all these adults' parts. I mean, like, that's the thing you were saying, like, in the summary, like, adults are the fucking worst. And the adults here are the fucking worst in this chapter, man. They just really are. And this, and it all starts with Sansa hearing what's happening around her as King's Landing explodes into chaos with Ned Stark's failed coup here. You make several excellent points there. Yeah, the Sansa 4 does not feel structurally like Arya 4 and Edward 14. What it feels like more to me, and let me see if you agree with this, that you can feel Martin switching gears into Sansa being one of the lasting POVs in King's Landing, yes. and Ned and Arya not being so. 100%. But their story, their story in the capital is done. Obviously, Ned's going to die, Arya's going to move on. Sansa is now our primary Stark POV on the Game of Thrones within the capital. Obviously, Tyrion's going to show up in, in Clash of Kings, Jaime in Storm of Swords, and then Sansa leaves the city in that book. But I think you can see Martin switching the King's Landing center of gravity to Sansa's POV away from her father's during this chapter. Oh, it's, and I think... Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I think that's, that's 100% correct, is that she's being... Like, just in terms of the narrative, absolutely, she's being put into into center stage here. Um, she will be the final POV in King's Landing itself with Sansa's yep. final chapter. And her first chapter, I believe it's like the... Is it the second or third chapter in, in Clash of Kings? It's the second chapter after the prologue. There's right. Crescent's prologue, Arya 1 in the Riverlands, and then Sansa, yes, yeah, our opening King's Landing POV in Clash. Yeah, so it's definitely a uh, a place where Martin is, is focusing her as being one of the primary POVs in King's Landing. I think it's it's good on, on, on a structural level. And I, I do love that point you're making about how it's very much a transitory chapter for her. It's transitioning her from being mostly a side character who is just an observer to being one who is being acted upon in a lot of ways of being this princess in the tower type character who has to deal with the aftermath and be pressed on all sides by people who do not have her best interest in mind. Absolutely. I'll get into a little more later that this chapter really feels like Martin laying the groundwork for how Sansa's clash and early storm chapters will, will feel. Oh yeah. How they'll move, what the general tone and themes of them are going to be. But yeah, to, to your other point that Sansa's climax really comes later in the book, comes with Ned's execution. That's really the shattering moment for her, the way Sirio's downfall is Arya's shattering moment. Right. And Ned's own downfall is his shattering moment. So I think that's partially why, unlike her father and sister, as you say, Sansa doesn't see the bloodshed. She just hears it. Right. She hears she, And then she hears about it in that just heart-stopping moment when James screams they're killing everyone, which just... It's just that made me like have to put the book down for a second my first yeah. time through because it's just so vivid and horrible. And it's it's a necessary intermediate step before the horror show of Ned's execution, as well as following up on Arya's nightmarish blood-soaked run through the Red Keep that we went over in Arya 4. And the most important part of this opening passage, I think, is 
Martin pointedly having Sansa note that the story she's heard and the training in Winterfell that she's overheard doesn't work like this. Mm. That there's there's no screaming, there's no begging for mercy when battles go down in the songs, and that's that's critical. And it's it's important that Martin seizes in on those two things. There's no screaming in the songs because the violence is flamboyant, right? Performative and exciting. Like if you include the screams, it's not fun anymore. It, yeah. it, it can become it can become artistically satisfying in a different way, in the way that a song of ice and fire is. But the songs that Sansa hears are not designed to be enjoyable in that way. They're not made to make you dwell on the costs of war. They're made to make you get up in arms, as Catelyn will say in Clash of Kings. You know, why Why are the, all these boys so willing to go to war and fight? And she wonders if the singers are the answer. If Raymond <laughs> the Rhymer, who's singing there at River Run about the Battle of the Fords, if he's why those boys are so willing to go. We kind of see that from Sansa here. And there's no begging for mercy in the songs because you never have to. Right. Because the merciless don't win yeah. in the songs. They would never have you at their mercy and you would have to beg them. Anyone who wins in the songs is the kind of person who, have, like Sansa says, the person who would go up to the white heart and just touch it and just be in love <laughs> with that animal, even though she knows Joffrey would kill it and that it would have to beg for mercy. The, the songs the songs don't feature that. The thing I kind of was thinking about in, in terms of that was um, when I was a kid, I grew up watching a lot of like World War II movies that were filmed in like the 50s and 60s where the action was very much almost kind of fairy tale like right i mean there wasn't a lot of blood there wasn't people begging for mercy at at the end or begging for their lives and then i remember being uh, what's when when did saving private ryan come out when i was 16 or 14 years old and watching that and being like oh my god like this is this is so different from what i remember from what i anticipated like this is this is terrible this is this is awful i uh, like that opening scene where they're storming omaha beach and then, you know, of course, being in war itself and seeing people die, it was it's so heart wrenching for me because Sansa is, is 11 years old. I mean, I, I had the benefit of being 26 years old when I was when I was in Afghanistan. Uh, she's just a kid, though. I mean, like when we talk about like Arya is, is was traumatized by what she was experiencing and witnessing with the death, but the probable death of Cyril Pharrell. Well, of course, he actually died, but the probable death in her mind of, of Cyril Pharrell and then seeing that Holland and all of these other guys that she had grown up around were, were dead and all around her. Like, this is a very a moment that creates a fair amount of trauma for Arya and then stays with her throughout her arc. For Sansa, it's very similar, although she doesn't actually get to see it. She hears it and almost feels like that's almost worse, right? Where you don't have, you have no idea what's going on, but you can hear people dying. Like that's got to be traumatizing on a completely different level because you're adding the trauma of hearing people die as well as not knowing what's happening, what's going on. Is she next? I mean, like the, the chapter opens with her thinking they came for her on the third day. And the impression that readers could come away with is that they're coming for her to finally kill her, right? I mean, that's something that Arya Absolutely. That's something that Arya brings up in her chapter. Like if they capture her, they'll kill her. You make a terrific point that that opening line is designed to evoke execution. And of course, Sansa will constantly fear execution throughout her time in King's right. Landing after Joffrey takes over in his own right. And just and everything comes crashing down for us, as we've been saying. And yeah, I love the bringing up, you bring up the World War II movies. There's that famous semi-apocryphal quote from the French filmmaker Francois Truffaut that it's impossible to make a genuinely anti-war war film. Right. Because in some way or another, you're always going to end up glorifying what, what you're, what you're displaying. Now, I, I certainly don't agree with that in terms of tone and theme. Like we've mentioned before, we love that movie, Waltz with Bashir. Yes. Which I would very much consider a, a war movie that is showing how stark and ugly the realities mm-hmm. of the, the deaths of civilians in war are. But, you know, at, at the same time, like we also talked about how beautiful and wonderful the imagery of oh, Waltz right. with Bashir is. Yeah. And so lyrical. So at some level, we're still talking about how pretty it is. Right. 
So it, you, you can't really get away with that. And I, can, I, th- I think you can see Martin working through that process where he definitely has moments of unblemished the glory of battle, like when Tyrion is talking about the battle fever during the Blackwater and shaking his axe at the stars and hearing them talk back at him and thinking about how Jamie had told him it would be like this, but he never... Like, you know, that's that's genuine elan for the battlefield oh, yeah. right there that Martin is expressing. But then you get him working through a scene like this where he's making it, as you say, more horrible by not showing it to you because both your imagination and Sansa's imagination can just run wild. So right. the Tower of the Hand, the fall of the Tower of the Hand is way worse in our mind than it ever could be, I think, with Martin showing it to us. Because there's not actually that much men left at the Tower of the Hand, if you really think about it. There's like, yeah. what, like a, there's a couple soldiers scattered throughout the city at this point. Some are with Ned, some are at the docks. Yeah. Because there are like, what, like a dozen men left at the Tower? But in your head, it can just become this waterfall of blood because they're just describing fragments of it. I mean, I mean, not, not to get too graphic here, but the human body can bleed a lot, you know? I mean, <laughs> not to... Well, fair point, sir. I mean, even if it's just a dozen dudes, I mean, like Jane Poole makes a point that... The, the the stairs running up to the Tower of the Hand were running with blood and they're sticky with blood. And like, that's just another visceral moment of horror. Again, that oh, Sansa yeah. doesn't see, but she hears about. So it again adds more into like the kind of the trauma for her and that kind of that fear. Like she doesn't, she doesn't witness any of this. And then of course we get the, what she does finally get to see some of it when she's led to, um, led to the council chambers and she sees the one guy I mean, this is this this kind of this kind of pissed me off in kind of a small way, but this one guy just being lowered into the dry moat, like you, you've you've killed all of Ned's men, and now you're not even giving them the courtesy of of a fucking burial, like you're just lowering them down into a moat, and you already got one guy down there who's already staked into one of the giant spikes at the bottom of the of the dry moat, and you're just like, I don't know, it's just, it's, yeah. it, it may be angry, like Loki angry, like that sort of line there that you've already you've already fucked Ned's men up, right? Now you're just like now you're adding insult to injury, and you're you're disrespecting the bodies of these guys who had fallen. It's that it's that same desecration of the dead you see at the red wedding, right? With Rob and Catelyn's bodies, and yeah, I think it is designed to make us angry at a very kind of like deep seated level, and make us instinctively sympathetic to the Starks. And I think it's just one of Martin's strategies to make that so. And then yeah, as always with Sansa, of course, we come back to her perceptions filtered through songs and stories, mm-hmm. and. When Martin has her talk about how this is different from the battle she remembers from those, I think you can see the two sides of his critique. Because on the one hand, he is saying the songs and stories are deceptive. And his proof of that, the proof is in the pudding, because Sansa is unable to deal with the likes of Cersei and Littlefinger in this chapter. She is so easily manipulated because the songs and stories have not prepared her for the notion that a beautiful woman who smiles at her and talks to her sweetly and steadily might still be fucking evil. Right. She just has, has not been prepared for that notion at all. On the other hand, though, you can see that the author believes in the values of mercy and compassion and self-sacrifice that are embedded, however dishonestly, in those same songs. Those values might be expressed shallowly and incompletely in those songs, but he still believes in them. So I think you can see the outline of Sansa's education and arc there, that she realizes the world doesn't back up the songs, and she decides she has to make it so. She has to counter those screams with mercy. And I think you can see that most vividly at the Blackwater, when you have the chaos of battle all around her, and Sandor telling her, no one's won but I've lost. Yeah. And she, she's constantly pressing for mercy for him throughout that whole that whole process. So I think that Martin's starting to play with those themes here, I think. Well, it's very vivid, too, is that the end of the chapter has Sansa returning back to her room and reading the songs and the stories that she was familiar with, kind of retreating oh, back yeah. into that. I mean, it's very much uh, paralleling what Martin is doing at the start of this chapter with showing that war and battle is nothing like the songs. But she kind of returns to those songs and stories, which to me, I think, emphasizes your point. 
that Martin is not being like, ha ha, the songs and stories were all wrong and you're stupid for believing them. It's showing that there's value in them and that there's comfort in these kinds of stories and they do have some value to a character like Sansa. And one of the things that they do most in terms of value to her is they're showing her an outline of chivalry, what it should be, not the way that it actually is right now. And she uses that, those songs and those stories then to help her in a very dangerous place because she has to use that chivalry. And one of the parts of chivalry that she has to use the most here is courtesy. That's the major part of what's going to keep her alive for so for three books when she's at the blade's edge of execution, as we talked about earlier. So courtesy is the way she does that. And she executes that probably bad word choice, marvelously here in this chapter. Yeah, so everything we've been talking about so far is the challenge to Sansa's worldview. So how does the faithful acolyte of the songs and stories respond? And as you say, over the course of her story, she comes to think of courtesy as, yes, her armor, and her armor Mm -hmm. against not just slights or faux pas, but against very real violence and imprisonment from her captors. And she has to, as you say, kind of cling to those stories as her refuge, not just something she's hoping to will into reality, but the last thing that belongs to her. You know, when you're a prisoner of of any kind, you're, the one thing that you have to yourself is, is the few inches within your head. Right. And your, your brain is your is your freedom. And the stories and songs are an escape for Sansa that way. And you can see the chapter opening with Sansa trying to take control of what little she has left when she, quote, she chose a simple dress of dark gray wool, plainly cut but richly embroidered around the collar and sleeves. So gray for Stark. Plain to be modest, but richly embroidered, because again, Stark. Right. So she's trying to have that balance of, I come to you very somber and stoic, but also like, I'm, I'm fucking Sansa Stark, so I have nice clothes. <laughs> I, th- I think this is something we'll see in Sansa 5, when she goes to court and realizes no one's talking to her, and like kind of reads Barristan and the Lords pretty well before ultimately trying to give her, her plea for Ned. Sansa actually does function within court fairly well in terms of surface-level signifiers. Like in this chapter, she knows morning clothes when she sees them as soon as she walks into the room. Tyrion will say at the Purple Wedding when Sansa's walking around, oh, she's very good at this. She, mm-hmm. She's complimenting everyone. She has one nice thing to say. She remembers who everyone is. She's good at this. For Sansa, she can she can handle court politics in this way. She's not like lawless. She's not just right. unable to function within these situations. The distinction between her and the adults that are manipulating her so heartlessly is they understand that those are signifiers. Mm-hmm. They understand that that's the public face of the Game of Thrones and that there is also a private face. For Sansa, at this point, the signifiers are all there are. That's that's the whole entire existence of being a lady to her is playing these these with these signifiers. She doesn't realize what's being covered up by the niceties. She doesn't realize that courtesy is actually a form of politics. Right. And that politics, as the saying goes, is actually a form of war. Right. So that's what, that's what leads you to this hideously ironic statement where... Sansa's telling Jane that, yeah, I'm certain your father is well. I'll ask the queen to let you see him. And Jane just keeps crying. And Sansa thinks, oh, you're such a child. <laughs> but in reality, far from being a child, poor Jane has had to grow up far too quickly in the worst way possible. And she arguably understands what's happening a lot better than Sansa does. Yeah, she does. And especially when you consider, and I kind of alluded to in, in my synopsis that it's likely that Van Poole is one of the casualties from at, at this point in that Jane potentially knows that. It's not made explicit in this chapter, but her constant sobbing and her constant uh, trauma- traumatization is just so explicit here that it's – I can't come to any other conclusion besides that that Jane knows that her father is dead and she – She's, she's had to grow up a lot more quickly than Sansa has. What I think that was really interesting about Sansa and her her utilization of, of courtesies is that she's not wrong to utilize her courtesies. These are the things that keep her 
safe, that keep her alive, that keep her well for three books in a, in a dangerous spot. She's not, though, Marjorie and the Tyrells either in kind of adorning their – in kind of using those symbol politics and using chivalry and courtesy and, and their dress and attire as a means of projecting power in Westeros. But she's learning. And again, like I can hear Chloe saying in the background, she's 11. So I, it's completely understandable why she wouldn't know more than, yeah, this is this is a great dress to wear. I need to wear this without really knowing why she needs to wear it. But at the same time, it's good that she has exactly. that ins- that she has that instinct to to do that. And that's going to pay pay dividends down the road as she as she matures into uh, a young princess, potentially a potentially queen of the north, some at some point in the winds of winter or dream of spring. The Tyrells are masters of combining hard and soft powers. We're gonna be talking about a lot more when we get to a clash of kings yep. and the storm of swords. You have the rose petals, but you also have the thorns waiting underneath, and they're very good at mixing and matching those two when they need it. Sansa, as you said earlier, has has none of that. She has no one looking out for her, no right. adults, no armies at her back. I think you can see signs in her released Winds of Winter chapter that when hard power once again avails itself to her, she's going to be much more Marjorie-like than she is here. Yep. And, and, and able to use symbol politics and hard politics in a way that coalesce beautifully. Um, but here, courtesy is mostly, as you say, it's... it's Keeping her alive in, in the sense that it's helping her give the people around her what they want. Right. And she'll ask Sandor at the end of this book, what does is, what is Joffrey want of me? And Sandor says he wants you to be nice and courteous and sweet and call him handsome. That's what he wants. <laughs> so that, that, that's what she, that's the opportunity. That's the only path she has. But in, in little dialogue scenes like in this chapter, the courtesy is starting to fail. Like it doesn't get Jane. To, to stop crying. Right. It doesn't get her guards to give her information. She tries to use it to navigate when Boros Blount shows up, even though Boros is super ugly. And she says, well, you look very handsome and splendid this morning, Sir Boros, Sansa told him. A lady remembered her courtesies, and she was resolved to be a lady no matter what. That's her rock. That's her anchor. Mm-hmm. Even though even though lady got executed, that's her anchor. Mm-hmm. And But Boros just responds, and you, my lady, Sir Boros said in a flat voice, like he doesn't care. Yeah. He's not invested in any of this, and he'll happily beat her with the rest in, uh, as this book goes on and in the next book. So, it's again, it's this very precise arc where Sansa still thinks the safety net is there, but it's dissolving away. So she clings to it even harder, as we said in Sansa 3, because she's, she's desperately trying to save herself and her family from the net. Yeah, but here she doesn't know that she's in mortal peril yet until she actually gets to meet up with Cersei in the small council. And I think it's actually in the council chambers that Ned was just in just a few days before he led his coup, right? I mean, I think it's that's... The point that's brought up is that they were meeting in the council chambers and not in Maker's Holdfast in the apartments that Cersei kept along with her children. And yeah, I mean, Boros doesn't deserve any of the nice things that Sansa is saying here. He was a participant in the massacre of Ned Stark's men in in the throne room. And he's not going to be any really any better as, as the story progresses. I mean, I do think... Personally speaking, it is a bit satisfying that at, as of the last point in A Dance of Dragons, that he has been reduced to being the, the taster for Tommen's food. I think that's an excellent point that makes my heart kind of flutter a little bit. That is Jamie Lannister's finest work right there. <laughs> Indeed. But yeah. And no, that's good stuff. It all takes us, though, to that confrontation between Sansa and the small council and what is going to happen with the, with good Queen Cersei, right? She's just such a great Good queen. She's the best as far as Sansa's concerned. And yes, all these things we've been talking about, the challenges to the songs and stories, princess worldview, Sansa's faith in the world around her and that faith being unwarranted and her having to realize that and, and do better, all that comes to head with Cersei. Because, of course, she knows exactly how to unlock Sansa in this regard because she was Sansa. 
at one point. Obviously a little darker than Sansa because she was already murdering her best friend when she was Sansa's age. True. But if you look back at the Cersei in that flashback, she is kind of naive and and believing in, in the romance of her life with Rhaegar in the same way Sansa was believing in it with Joffrey. So there's, there was clearly a parallel there. And I think Cersei definitely recognizes herself in Sansa to some degree. But she, what she uses that for is not empathy, but manipulation. She's yep. like, I know how to screw with this kid. I know how to get this kid to do what I want. She doesn't hold back. I think of you almost as my own daughter. And I know the love you bear Joffrey. Like, it might seem strange to rank anything that happens in this scene as an act of cruelty compared to the outright wanton bloodshed <laughs> we've seen in these last couple of King's Landing chapters. But what Cersei does to Sansa and Jane in this chapter is just so heartless. Yes. And so cruel. Like, she starts off speaking so sweetly and sadly. Sansa, I know you've been asking for me. I'm so sorry that I could not send for you sooner. Matters have been very unsettled. Matters have been very unsettled. <laughs> I've been busy killing your father's men and taking him captive. Mm, yeah. Matters have been very unsettled for me, Sansa, and I have not had a moment. I trust my people have been taking good care of you, but then immediately the claws come out as soon as she mentions Jane Poole. Right. Us? Cersei seemed puzzled. We put the steward's girl in with her, Sir Boros said. We do not know what else to do with her. I love that Sir Boros is just completely incompetent. <laughs> and like, can't even be trusted with these basic tasks. The queen frowned. Next time you will ask, she said, her voice sharp. The gods only know what sort of tale she's been filling Sansa's head with. And then later on, she's upset you, the queen said gently. We can't be having that. Uh, yeah, we can't be having that. And why is that? Is it because you're absolutely so concerned about poor Sansa Stark's mood? No, it's because you need her to be on your side right. so she'll write this letter for you. And it's, it's, it's gradually revealed throughout this scene what it is Cersei is, is asking for. And by the time she finally says, well, it would help if the rest of your family was, was loyal, then we can marry you to Joffrey. That's when, as readers, we go, oh, oh boy. That's what Cersei's looking for from Sansa. Oh, gosh. She wants her as a puppet. She wants her to write this letter. And the only way she's going to get Sansa to do that is if Sansa doesn't freak out too much right. about what's going on around her. She needs Sansa to be complicit and just and keep everything okay. So it's, it's that it's weaponized naivete. Mm -hmm. Like Cersei needs to keep Sansa in that bubble in order to manipulate her cruelly. And I think it's, just, it's that great meeting point between the world and Sansa's head and, and the real world of politics. That Cersei is manipulating her but needs, she needs Sansa to stay in that bubble as long as she possibly can. And that's just so cruel. It is so cruel. And what I, what I really like in the show, because I, I did watch this scene before we came on air, is that it is very clearly stage managed that everyone is super stiff. I mean, if you watch like the scene from the show, like all of the actors are like, acting right they're actually they they're hamming it up in this in the scene intentionally because it's it's excellent work on it's excellent work on the part of of the showrunners and the writers and the actors in question to kind of just like ham it up like the girl is innocent of course and Cersei being like Sansa I think of you like my own daughter already sort of thing like it's very over the top and Cersei is very over the top in the scene. It's much more expanded, obviously, in the books than in the show where it's it's just a two minute, 30 second scene. But here it's it's much more expanded about how much how much Cersei is, like you said, weaponizing courtesy in order to get Sansa on her side because she has an ultimate purpose for her. But I do love I, I love the fact that the veil drops immediately when something comes like a when a wrench gets kind of thrown in the gears, when Boros reveals that Jane has been put in the room with Sansa like that's. That's that's good writing on, on George's part that that Cersei just goes 
she's already had this whole plan. Like, you can imagine her like rehearsing like this scene with a small council before Sansa arrives for like a day or so. Like, okay, then I'm oh, going to yeah. say this. And then Paisa, you're going to put this line in. Varas, you're going to say this. Littlefinger, please don't say shit at all. But of course, Littlefinger's got to say shit because it's Littlefinger. But then, of course, when Boris is like, ah, oh, well, Jane's there. Like, she's like, what? No, that's, 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 what are you, what are you? That's not in the plan. What are you thinking? Yeah, we, we, we did, this was not in the plan whatsoever. So I think it's. it's we rehearsed this, guys. Right, right. Maybe we should have had Boris in the, in the, in the rehearsal beforehand. Exactly. Always bring everyone to the rehearsal dinner, guys. No, I think you <laughs> hit the nail on the head when you call it stage manage. That's exactly what the scene feels like. Everyone's playing a role in Cersei's little drama to get Sansa to, to get on board. Like, she has Varus playing good cop. Right. You know, saying, oh, it's such the sweet mouth, the innocence of Aves. I mean, that is how he talks generally. Right. But he's also clearly playing a role in this scene. And she has Pycelle playing bad cop. You know, the traitor's blood will tell and we can't trust her. Littlefinger, I get the sense that he just... <laughs> Cersei, he just invited himself. Right. And Cersei just couldn't couldn't refuse him because he just handed her Ned Stark. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into more of this a little bit later, but there's negotiations for Sansa's hand going on in the background yes. between Cersei, Littlefinger, and a couple other people. So this might be at some point there's negotiations. Littlefinger impress the need to be in this meeting but he's mostly just talking to himself as again we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll touch on a little bit I think it's curious though that there is an absent member of the small council here and that character is Barristan Selby who is conspicuously absent here and you do True. kind of I, I, I think the implication is that Cersei intentionally isolated him from the small council perhaps he put him on guard for Joffrey or something like that some way to get him out of the way so he wouldn't be able to because I, I can't imagine Barrison as much as he's kind of not the best uh, character, not the best person necessarily, that he would necessarily be like, wait a minute, you want me to do what? No, 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 I, I, I can't do that. My honor, my honor, my honor's at stake. My precious honor. Yeah, manipulating a small, scared child is not embarrassing Selmy's skill set. Right. You know, he's the, the man's done many things that I don't approve of and that he himself has doesn't approve of at this late stage in his life, but... <laughs> I don't think he'd go there. And I think that's an early hint that he's just not going to fit right. in this overall new Lannister regime. Because part of what we're seeing here is because this is kind of, in a sense, the first time we're seeing the Lannister regime in King's Landing, yep. which will be the dominant power in Westeros over the course of really the series to date. Correct. You know, I think they're going to go down eventually to Young Griff, but they're running the show. And this is this is the first time we see it. Cersei and the, the counselor she's decided to keep around for, for various reasons with her helping to try this to set the stage. Because she is ultimately, like I said, trying to keep Sansa a pawn and prevent her from understanding what's happening so she'll cooperate. Because yep. as, as Varys will say to, to Ned in the Black Cell, she's really just trying to get the Starks to stand down at this point. Right. So she can deal with what she considers to be the real problems, which are Stannis and Renly. Hmm. So you, you have this hideous moment in which Cersei is just dealing with Jane and Sansa starts to cry because I think at some level her courtesies are just barely preventing her from realizing that Veon Poole's dead. Yeah. Like, she never says it explicitly to herself, but once she she keeps asking, why is no one talking about her father? Where is her father? I think at some level she realizes what's going on. Yeah. And she's and she's got a good heart here. She, when she talks about Jane, it just gets me. Where are you sending her? She hasn't done anything wrong. She's a good girl. Like, that's just, it's 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 very sweet and very innocent and loving, and it's, it's it just tears your heart out. Mm-hmm. And of course, how does Cersei keep her on on agenda i just had to keep her on on page she with love a lie about love and it works you know i love you you know joffrey loves you and all of sansa's fears vanish mm-hmm. and that's just that's just such a perfect encapsulation of cersei's worldview as she'll explain to sansa in clash of kings that love love is poison yeah that love rots you out and is a terrible thing and makes you weak so it's only to be used as a weapon or a tool of manipulation like when she was hitting on ned 
what she'll do with Lancel, what she'll do with the Kettleblacks, really what she's been doing with Jamie the whole time. <laughs> and you can see that reflected in Littlefinger as well. I mean, what his obsessions that he would call love have, have done to him. Like in this scene when he's comparing her to Catelyn, oh when he's God. staring at her with his creepy eyes. Even the political stuff where he says, like, yeah, who cares about the Starks? I'd worry more about Lady Catelyn and the Tullys. Which... <laughs> Really doesn't make sense because Jamie is already going after Edmure at this point. Tywin's bringing another army marching around. The reason Cersei is so frantic about getting Sansa to write this letter at all is because she knows, hey, if the, if the Starks get involved with all of their bannermen, the numbers are going to start not looking good for us yep. real quick. So Littlefinger is, is, is just so blinded by what he wants and what he needs in this scene that he's, again, like all the other counselors seem to be working on this strategy. Littlefinger just kind of seems like he's there on his own mission yes. and for his own purposes. Yeah, it's interesting. When we talked about in Catelyn 7, you can really get the sense why Littlefinger is identifying Hoster Tully as the threat here because he fucking hates Hoster Tully because Hoster Tully was the exactly. one who took everything from him and to add insult to injury, aborted his child and ensured that he was and, – and of course, as much as we despise Littlefinger, what Hoster Tully did to this battered and broken kid by sending him in a cart back to his home in the Fingers was – not not for the best. Let's let's call it that. Certainly not. So he's he's identifying Hostertully as like the biggest threat because in his mind, Hostertully is the biggest threat because he's always been the biggest threat to Littlefinger because of how he stole Catelyn away from her, from him, how he stole Lysa away from him as well and stole his child. So of course he thinks that Hostertully is the guy that they need to be concerned about. It's such an interesting character beat for Littlefinger. They dismisses the Stark threat altogether because, you know, Brandon is dead. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's long dead now. Right. He's moldering in his grave. Right. Yeah. And Stark is in the dungeons now. So he's kind of taken care of and he's already probably got his plot going with Joffrey here in order to ensure that Ned Stark dies. But Hostertully, man, we gotta, we gotta watch out for him, you know? And, and the other thing too is like, he's, he makes that point about Rob. He's, ah, he's just a boy, you know? Yeah, don't worry about him. We gotta worry about Hostertully though, man. Like that guy's, he's the worst. Like he's, he's so fierce and formidable. Like we gotta worry about him. Even though Hostertully is, Catelyn knows and probably the realm knows it to some extent is, uh, incapacitated, uh, due to his likely stomach cancer he's experiencing right now. And Tywin will make the same mistake regarding Rob, which I get. He's young. He's not been in battle before. But even if you dismiss Rob, like, he has bannermen right. around him. Like, are you not worried that Roose Bolton and Great John Umber are coming for your blood? Right. I would I would not want those guys after me. Nope. But, yeah. So, in the end, I think you can see in this chapter that Sansa's primary motivation is pushing for her family to survive mm-hmm. and for them to be reconciled with the Lannisters. And that she is – this is all one big struggle for her. It's not just like, oh, I, I – She's not purely thinking about, I want to marry Joffrey, so my family has to get in line. She's thinking this whole process of, okay, I can save my dad, mm-hmm. and then then I can marry Joffrey, and then he'll be on my side, and then we can pardon the rest of my family. But they have to not screw it up in the meantime, so I'm going to talk to them for this reason. And again, it's, it's built on built on huge naivete about who Cersei and Joffrey are. Yep. But I think you can see Martin pushing past the pitch letter in that Sansa is not desiring to abandon her family outright for the Lannisters here, that she's trying to struggle to form a synthesis between the two and get the family members she genuinely cares about to survive. And that's the context I kind of look at the end of the chapter in which she remembers she didn't ask about Arya, which is often taken, I think, in a rather unfair and narrow-minded direction to mean that Sansa doesn't care about Arya mm-hmm. or isn't, doesn't love her. But in the situation Sansa's in and the, the trauma she's going through, I think it's, you know, the fact that it took an hour extra for Arya to come to mind. I don't think it is particularly damning. What it comes off to me is, is more this parallel to Jane and that both of Arya and Jane are the 
are the silent sisters of Sansa's hmm. story. They're the lost and the dead, to quote Catelyn's first of Storm and Swords chapters. They're both just being, they're both just being vanished and 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 taken away from her. And that's just a very different kind of violence than the violence we the again the overt violence we've seen in the last couple of King's Landing chapters. This is how violence looks from the absolute top. This is how Cersei deals with violence. She just casually vanishes them. We see that in A Feast for Crows, where there's inconvenient women. Just go behind that curtain with Kyber. Right. I'm not going to ask any questions. I don't know what's going on. That's the exact same thing she does with Jane here. She doesn't want to see it. She doesn't want to know about it. It just gets done. That's subtle. A subtle kind of horror, but it's no less effective. And this is Sansa seeing how people in power actually work. That they can just make this happen. And, you know, not to get too pretentious about it, but that definitely has real-world implications in which we have drone kill lists yep. and you know certain governments around the world assassinating people like this this is how it works and you don't have to do it yourself you don't have to swing the sword Cersei does not have to swing the sword she just passes the sentence and it's quietly done out of sight yeah or I mean you could talk about like the, the CIA's black sites back during the war on terror and all oh, of these sure. terror suspects that would just be captured at some point in, in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq and then Hmm, we have no idea what happened to them. They might be in Poland. They might be in Egypt. They might be anywhere. But I mean, the, the same thing is, is is going on at work here with Jane disappearing. And you bring up the great point about uh, is it Lady Tanda, Mary, not Tandy Merriweather, but, but Lady Tanda Stillworth and the blue bar just disappearing in Kyburn's chambers. And that is really horror-esque in terms of who Cersei is as as, as a villain in the story, I mean, there's there's no ifs and buts about it. I mean, she's definitely a villain to Sansa here throughout. And I do think it's really fascinating that, you know, she Cersei twists courtesy, as we saw, saw earlier on, but she also twists love, yes. too, in getting yep. Sansa to do her bidding as, as she wants her to do. She twists all of these things. She takes things that are good, things that, you know, are things like story, story things, and she twists them. Everything is being twisted, 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 twisted. And that's essentially who Cersei is, that she's the person who's manipulating Sansa, bringing her to the point where she's writing letters to Rob, to Catelyn, to Lysa, to Hoster Tully, and... That's that's seemingly a good end state for them, right? But at the same time, you do kind of scratch your head because I think here we get a little bit of what ends up unfolding in A Feast for Crows where Cersei has kind of a low cunning because would a letter from Sansa convince Robb Stark not to march to save his father? No. Probably not. I think as, as Catelyn says, the, Cersei's real intention is to establish that Sansa's her hostage. Right. And I think that's what Sansa doesn't realize is that the, the, the specific – content of when she's writing doesn't matter so much as the fact that she's writing it is Cersei's way of letting her mother and her brother know I have Sansa right. and I can I can manipulate her and she doesn't really get who I am which again just yeah adds a whole other layer to Cersei as this twisted cynical version of the queen in Sansa's head <laughs> where you know she's she hopes that Cersei will love her and take care of her but you know she again she's she's disappearing children like at the cages at the border so hot political <laughs> material aside that takes us into our foreshadowing and groundwork section for the episode as the title of this episode indicates, and as Jeff brought up earlier, Martin really will expand on many of these chapters tropes at length with Ariane Rattel mm-hmm. in The Princess of in the Tower, which is a, in From a Feast for Crows, one of my favorite chapters in the series. Oh, yeah. And I think you can see Martin, yeah, going back to this chapter and saying, Okay, I liked what I was doing here. How can I how can I blow this up to widescreen? How can I dwell for pages at a time on this specific feeling, this specific imprisonment? And I think he does a great job. Yeah. It's it's cool though when we get to Feast for Crows, is that Dora Martell as much as 
he's not the best either. He His imprisonment of Ariane does have a purpose in there in attempting to get Ariane to get to his perspective and to kind of wise up from her foolish plots and trying to queen Marcella, trying to queen, and trying to crown Marcella. Uh, of course, it doesn't necessarily work in that Ariane tries to escape. She tries to manipulate people and, and uh, servants here. One of the interesting uh, parallels that I saw is that in this chapter, there's there's a line about how Sansa was like asking after the servants, like, what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? And the servants just like leave the food and just like roll out. Same thing happens with Ariane in A Feast for Crows where the servants are not allowed to speak with her. And Ariane like slaps them and yells at them and does all these kind of crazy theatrical things that Ariane does because I love her. And um, <laughs> that is... Yes. Yes, we know. Oh my gosh. She's my in-universe girlfriend. What can I say? But no, it's really it's really cool though about uh, that that George does. I think that's a great point you bring about it. How George ex- gives it a wider lens for Ariane and does kind of like sh- it, it's not it's not a play for play thing. What happens with Sansa here? But it's definitely interesting that George returns back to this trope of the princess in the tower, which is you know something a, a fairy tale thing, which is what you know Sir Jancy O was talking about earlier about the princess being up in the tower is a very much a fairy tale trope that is in evidence in many many fairy tale stories. So I think it's really interesting and fascinating on Martin's part. Certainly, but you make a good point that the relationship with the captor is different, and that's in part because Ariane is older, so it's not about an adult, you know, heartlessly manipulating a child so much as a child who's become an adult talking to her father who still thinks of her as a child. Correct. So that's, it's a little different generational dynamic. Speaking of generations <laughs> and their dynamics, uh, Sansa just hearing the sounds of fighting over the Tower of the Hand, as we were saying, but not actually seeing any of it, is mirrored later in Cadlin hearing the Whispering Wood erupt into battle around her, mm-hmm. and she doesn't actually see most of the battle occur. And mother and daughter get a lot of the parallel experiences in that way, in which Sansa represents the innocent entering maturity, and Catelyn represents the weary perspective of adulthood, but they're looking at the same thing, so you get it through their two different perspectives. For example, you get the Sansa-Sandor dialogue in The Clash of Kings right before the Blackwater, where he goes, I'm honest, it's the world, that's awful, and he's talking about strong arms and steel swords rule this world. And it's, it's just very similar to the dialogue you get a few chapters later between Catelyn and Jamie, where he's saying so many oaths, they make you swear and swear. And the, 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 there's tons of themes in common there. But the difference is the POV, that Sansa is the wide-eyed innocence kind of learning this from Sandor. And Catelyn is someone who has been through her own heartache and grief arguing back and forth with Jamie. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point you bring up about that kind of thematic continuity that we see in Martin's work. I do love that... As much as it's a parallel of Sansa's hearing the battles going on and, and Catelyn is mostly hearing what's happening at the Whispering Wood, there's a very different dynamic in the two chapters in that Sansa, in that oh, sure. the, the dynamic of Sansa hearing the sounds of battle is one of horror, right? And as we talked about earlier, in Catelyn and the Whispering Woods, it's kind of this magical, almost kind of ethereal kind of spirit that we see there where she sees flashes of Rob there and uh, I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head how Catelyn 10 opens up, but it's this very the woods were full of whispers yes there we go the woods were full of whispers like that's just it's one of my favorite chapters I can't wait to get to it but yeah it's like it feels like he's playing with time at certain points and space and she's just like she sees the armies as like will of the wisps with flames at one point it's just it's it's very yeah it's you're completely right the tone is totally different again that's you get the similar situations in some respects between Sansa and Catelyn similar perspectives but they just bring a completely different uh, characterization to it Speaking of Catelyn, uh-huh. you know, Cersei's rubies looking like bloody teardrops in the council scene, that vivid imagery you pointed out. That's something that Martin returns to over and over mm-hmm. again, most obviously with the unforgettable face of Catelyn as Lady Stoneheart with her, her bloody gauges that she's ripped into her face looking mm. like tears. 
You also see that, of course, with Liana and the, the, the tears, the, the way she was weeping blood, her statue was weeping blood in Ned's Nightmare a few chapters back. Uh, Lysa has some similar imagery in there. It's a motif, I dare say. I think you're right about that being a motif, for sure, that we that Martin returns to it. It's very vivid imagery. I mean, Martin loves his imagery mm-hmm. as vivid as possible, and Tears of Blood is definitely something that Martin really kind of fixates on a little bit, for the betterment of the narrative, I would, I would say. I, I think it's, of course, interesting that... Uh, like I pointed out in the, in the synopsis, that Cersei's tears are are not necessarily tears of sadness over Robert dying, but they're most likely True. tears of joy uh, for... The tears are Robert's blood, not even Cersei's. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, kind of a little bit more of a minor thing. Varys has this line that he gives to Sansa where he says, blood runs truer than O's. And that really reminds me of what Illyria Mopatis tells Tyrion in A Dance of Dragons, where he says, some contracts are written in ink and some in blood. I say no more. So the context of Illyria's line is that Tyrion is questioning why the Golden Company would fight for the Red Dragon when they'd spent their entire existence fighting against the Red Dragon on behalf of the Black Dragon, that is the Blackfires. When George is writing A Game of Thrones, as we've talked about it numerous times before, George hadn't dreamed up the Blackfires yet that came at some point, either at the end of A Clash of Kings or between writing Clash and Storm. So that was kind of retconned in here. I do wonder whether Martin reread this line from Vars in the Game of Thrones and then gave Vars' line some additional contextualization via Illyria and Vars and the Blackfires that a Dance of Dragons. That seems like something Martin would do in, ter- in terms of kind of being like, oh, well, this was Varys' plan all along. Look at these two lines. They're very similar in terms of blood running truer than O's, that what the Golden Company has sworn in past times is more important than any contracts they took up with Mir and Lys or whatever side they're fighting on during that disputed land battle or war that was going on. I think that's a great point. I got to imagine once Martin settled on, okay, Varys' plan is, is this kid, right. and he's going to be linked to the Blackfires, he's going to have the Golden Company. Once he came to that point, which seems to have been in the writing for probably a Storm of Swords or just the big Clash Storm writing fest mm-hmm. that was the late 90s for George R. R. Martin, I gotta imagine once he started to do that, he was going back over Varus's earlier dialogue scenes with a fine-toothed gum going, okay, yeah. how can I link this? What what are the word choices? What are the themes in common that I can maintain the illusion of coherence right. and make it seem as if this was the plan the whole time? <laughs> I, I imagine, I bet you could see a lot more similarities, and we'll have to keep an eye out years down the line when we get to Illyrio's scenes in Tyrion's early dance chapters, because I bet we'll find a lot of commonalities yeah. between that and what Varys says in these early books, deliberately on Martin's part. Man, I can't, can't wait for 2024. It's going to be so cool when we get there. I know. We're going to have to spend so much time on those dance chapters. It's going to be great. <sighs> three hours three hours every single week, four hours in some of these chapters, especially when we get to the Quentin chapters. And, Heck yeah. And then finally, for our kind of our foreshadowing groundwork section, we have a little more context about what Littlefinger was up to with regard to Sansa. You know, all of those creepy looks that Baelish gives to Sansa can be... <sighs> understood a little better, even though it's a little bit of a more horrific context. And the this is from Cersei's second chapter in Dance of Dragons, so we're talking like very close to the end of of, of Dance. So she's she's Cersei is standing there at Baylor Sept about to do her march across King's Landing in the nude, and she thinks that uh, she th- she's thinking about Sansa and thinking about how she had Thought about doing a Lannister marriage for for Sansa. She would never marry Joffrey to Sansa, but maybe, you know, Lancel, she could have married him to her. But then she thinks Peter Baelish had offered to wed the girl himself, she recalled. But of course, this was impossible. He was much too low born. Well, now that Littlefinger is the Lord of Harrenhal and the Lord Protector of the Vale, 
He's not so quote-unquote low-born anymore. He has risen high in this world. And you have to imagine that Littlefinger's plans have not necessarily changed and that perhaps, probably, he has interest in marrying Sansa. Especially when you consider that he likely has a means of disposing of Harry the heir at some point, probably early, mid-portion of the Winds of Winter. Totally. I think when Littlefinger says in that small council meeting early on in Storm of Swords that... You know, Lysa would never have wed me before, but hey, the Lord of Harrenhal and the Lady of the Eerie, that's a match that might work. I'm sure he's thinking in his head not only about now I'm good enough to marry Catelyn. I'm sure he's also thinking now I'm good enough to marry Sansa. Right. Now now Cersei couldn't reject me anymore. And yeah, that definitely adds a whole other layer to this scene because I'm just so curious timing-wise. When does this scene in Sansa 4 line up with this marriage offer from Littlefinger right. and Cersei rejecting him? Has he already made it? Has she already rejected him? Hmm. Is that why like, he acts all like snippy when he asks, do you take me for a fool when Cersei <laughs> tells him to take Jane out of the city? Like, Is Littlefinger staring so hard at her because at Sansa because he thinks he might be able to marry her or because he already knows he won't and he's frustrated? Like, There's, there's no good answers here <laughs> in terms of how I feel about Peter Baelish. But that was a very interesting little thing to drop so late in the series. Right. And it really definitely adds a whole nother layer of creepy to this scene, for sure. It absolutely does. So, in that same vein of talking about Littlefinger here, we come at last to a topic that kind of breaks my heart. And that is the treatment of Jane Poole and what Littlefinger ends up doing with her Starting at the end of this chapter, most likely, because she's gone from Sansa's chambers at the end of this chapter. And then extending forward into Storm of Swords, where Jamie Lannister meets her in the guise of Arya Stark. And then expanding on to A Dance of Dragons, where she is wed to Ramsay Snow, because I'm never going to call him Ramsay Bolton. Not only is, I mean, the Boltons suck, but he doesn't even deserve the Bolton name because he's the fucking, well, he's not quite the fucking worst. Littlefinger's the fucking worst. He's close to the fucking worst, though. He's definitely in the room. But yeah, Littlefinger's treatment of Jane Poole is high on my list of reasons to hate Littlefinger. Yes. So, uh, to be clear from what we gather from Jane when we meet her again in Dance with Dragons from Theon's POV, she was sent to one of Littlefinger's brothels and quote-unquote trained mm. in the art of pleasing men, and there's whip marks, so it's clearly she was abused along the way either by Littlefinger's brothel people or by the client she was given to either way just absolutely just Horrible. stump churning yeah. and horrifying that, that she went through this and then got married was married to ramsey of all people even even worse if anything and so as you were saying earlier in the chapter that gets my blood boiling and makes me wonder if Littlefinger's treatment of jane pool is going to come back to bite him and it is going it's going to be some sort of plot relevant thing because okay at this point theon leapt out of winterfell with jane at the end of his a dance with dragons arc and then we learn his he shows up in, in the sacrifice in Asha's final chapter in mm-hmm. Dance with Dragons at Stannis' camp, having been brought there by Taika Nostoris, the uh, banker from the Iron Bank. There's, there's a lot of characters in the Winterfell plotline of Dance with Dragons, <laughs> so every time you talk any, about it, you're like, you bring up five different people because yep. all these characters involved. It's great. That's why I love it. So uh, just Jane Poole at this point is being sent out of the Battle of Ice, as we know from Theon's first Winds of Winter chapter, by Stannis under the care of Justin Massey, one of his knights. He is going on to Bravos to hire some sellswords with money from the Iron Bank. She might stay at Castle Black. Mm-hmm. She might accompany Massey to Bravos. We've talked before about how she might act as a spur for Arya in that regard yep. if she sees someone else being referred to as Arya Stark. Either way, she is hanging around the margins of the struggle for the North. She's, I don't think she's likely, she's out of the Battle of Ice, so she's not going to get recaptured or killed. And Sansa is eventually coming home. So I would, I'm curious to see if we could be in for. A tier four reunion between these two friends. Hmm. It's obviously not something we saw on the show because Sansa kind of was given Jane's story in A Dance with Dragons and wasn't wasn't really a character beyond like the first episode. So 
that that would be, I think, a potentially very powerful, painful reunion, and maybe the truth comes out, and maybe this could be one of the reasons Sansa turns on the Mockingbird. Admittedly, there's lots of reasons for yeah. Sansa to eventually turn on Littlefinger. You know, you've got you've got Ned. Of course, you've got Littlefinger's just general attitude towards her and his his general creepiness. You've got him probably murdering Sweet Robin and Harry the Air mm-hmm. at some at some point. Sansa will her couple runneth over in terms of reasons to kill Littlefinger. <laughs> but it's it's just his treatment of Jane Poole is so vile, and their relationship. Sansa and Jane's that is is left so kind of open as an as a undealt with plot thread yeah. that I wonder if it's going to snap together and that's part of why she turns on Littlefinger and if so that would be very satisfying it would be extremely satisfying because Jane has been through so much horrific terrible shit as a result of Littlefinger when you talk about him turning her into a sex slave I mean for lack of a better term I mean there's no ifs and buts about it. I mean he mm-hmm. really abuses this this girl and then furthers that abuse by giving her over to Ramsay. And then, I mean, like in, in Theon's The Winds of Winter chapter, you know, are actually, it's actually in Asha's The Sacrifice chapter mentions made that she's lost an ear due to frostbite and the part of the tip of her nose. And so you're like, of the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, there are a few that are still living that have suffered as much as Jane Poole has suffered in the narrative. And you do want to see, at least I do, I think most people do want to see some comeuppance for her treatment there. It's interesting that when she does jump from the walls of Winterfell and she's interrogated by Moore's Umber outside of Winterfell, that she's able to pass as Arya at least to Moore's Umber there. Like he asks a bunch of questions of her and he's she's able to respond in an appropriate enough manner that she's still re- re- seen as, as Arya Stark. And then when she's brought to Stannis's camp, Stannis instructs Justin Massey to, to take her up there. And he's also going with, uh, speaking of characters that like five characters pop up, uh, what's her name? The, uh, the Mormont girl. Alisane Mormont, Al- the she-bear. Alisane Mormont is also going up with Justin Massey to take Jane Poole back to Castle Black. Given the amount of abuse she suffered, the disfigurement she's also suffered due to the ice, cold, and snow up in Winterfell, what happens when she gets back to Castle Black? What is John going to make of her? Is he going to remember his sister, his sister's face? I mean, there's an argument to be made that perhaps John might not know whether this is actually Arya or not. I mean, one of the, the things, Oof. one of the, yeah, it's one of the, the things kind of heartbreaking, but an aspect of resurrection that we see from Beric Dondarrion is that he yeah. he has this whole line about he had a castle he remembered a woman he was about to he was he was going to wed but he can't remember any of that now like he's been brought back so many times that he's his memories have faded you do kind of wonder what it all fades it all yep. fades one of the saddest lines in a song of ice and fire you do wonder oh, yeah. whether John's memories will fade a bit whether he might not know what Arya looks like so when she's brought to Castle Black it could potentially be a heart, another heartbreaking moment in the series where John will be like, I guess she's Arya. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard to say. Um, but I, I think that's it's but to kind of talk a little bit about a little happier moment um, and as a little plug for our, our recent Fire and Blood Q&A. Uh, there was a question about Alisane and Sansa's relationship and their parallels in the story. And Emmett, I, I, I know this is kind of spoils stuff for our patrons if, if you're listening to them, for those who are non-patrons, but that's okay. Maybe a little plug too. You brought up an interesting idea about Alisane and Sansa and where Sansa might end up in The Winds of Winter and or Dream of Spring. Yeah, so Sansa does indeed follow the path of Alisane as outlined in the excerpt from Fire and Blood Volume 1 that was then part of the actual package that Alisane's progress through the north that seems like Sansa is probably going to be echoing pretty clearly given how strongly it lines up with what her path through the north would be through White Harbor and the Manderleys and the Woman's Court there 
that's established in Dance with Dragons, and then Alaric Stark is the Stannis equivalent. Again, we, we talk about this at length in our Patreon episode. Mm-hmm. Point being that Alysanne's journey eventually leads her to the Wall, so if Sansa does the same, I think that's where we'll see the Sansa-John reunion, uh, last season six of the show. But uh, with, with Sansa in full pomp and circumstance and an army behind her, because again, she won't be playing the Jane role right. in the books. So if we do get a Sansa-Jane reunion, I think there is the most likely setting for it and the time and place for it. And if so, yeah, I can see a devastating scene where, where John brings out Jane think, saying, oh, look, it's Arya. Arya's here. Right. And Sansa goes, no, that's Jane. That's my friend. Oh, God. So that pretty much brings our, our very happy episode to a close. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't slit your wrists. Don't slit your wrists. Don't cry too, too much. No, but seriously, thank you so much for listening. It's a pleasure to do these these podcasts uh, for you guys. It's a lot of fun talking with you, Emmett, as every week, sometimes more than mm-hmm. once a week. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. We do look at all of our ratings, reviews, comments, our likes. So check us out on Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. Uh, you can follow us on social media at notacastasoiaf or hit us, hit us up with an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at poorquentin or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So, join us next time as we finally leave King's Landing. Man, these three chapters have been rough, man. Rough chapters. I mean, great chapters, but rough as well. True, but we still got something coming as there's no more room in hell, so the dead walk the earth. Oh, I thought this was going to be another Happy John chapter. No, it's not a Happy John chapter. This is the zombies one. I've been waiting for this one for so long. (laughs) I can't wait. Magic comes walking back into the story, and yes, yes, it's going to be a good time. And we will see you guys next time. Take care.